The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, is about to get an important new power, the ability to run bid competitions and award contracts. Now, CISA to date has not had its own procurement authority. The new development is part of the agency's fast growth in recent years. We get details from Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And Justin, is this going to be a watch out what you wish for or do they expect success with it? And when does this all kick in? Well, we'll have to see whether they uh, expect or get success with it, but it kicks in this month. The agency will get its own contract specialists and, as you said, have the ability to actually procure things on its own. Today, it's had to rely on outside entities, probably most notably the Office of Procurement Operations up at Homeland Security headquarters. So as one of the newest federal standalone agencies, CISA is still kind of building out these management and support capabilities that a lot of other agencies may take for granted. And, you know, obviously the agency was just established back in 2018. It was previously the National Protection and Programs Directorate at DHS headquarters. CISA Chief Information Officer Bob Costello called the Procurement Authority uh, a huge, huge deal. And he spoke about CISA's evolution as a standalone agency at an event last week. There's a lot of work, too, internally just on our own identity and culture as well. MPPD was a headquarters component under management. And now we're, you know, a component of, you know, equal rank to TSA or CBP. So we're developing our own culture here as well. All right. So culture and Justin, what else do we know about CISA's acquisition plans? Well, budget documents show CISA wants to build out a procurement team within the office of the chief acquisition executive. David Patrick is currently that chief acquisition executive at the agency. He has served previously in leadership roles at acquisition offices at Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, DHS headquarters, U.S. Customs and Border Protection. So he's pretty experienced in DHS acquisition matters. And CISA is requesting $6.2 million in 2023 to build out this procurement team. The new team will help streamline and improve procurement planning at CISA and hopefully work more closely with the agency's divisions and programs. And it also hopes to identify and use contract flexibilities to help meet end user needs. So that's kind of standard for a procurement office, but that's what they're looking to do as soon as they can build out this new team. All right. I guess it certainly takes money to spend money. Do we know any of the bigger actual acquisitions they plan to do or what have some of their big buys to date been? Yeah. So so these programs are, are some of their major acquisition programs that they run operationally but are contracted out through other means. Uh, one is the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation CDM program that continually monitors and reports on vulnerabilities at civilian agencies. There's also the National Cybersecurity Protection System, otherwise known as Einstein. That's the cyber defense system for the federal government that's supposed to uh, detect intrusions and and also provide some analytic capabilities. There's also Next Generation Network Priority Services, an emergency telecommunications service for the federal government. So all these programs are under contract, and you wouldn't expect CISA getting procurement and authority to change anything about them in the near term. But it gives you a sense of the type of programs that CISA runs. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And did Costello, the CIO there, give any indication of what else he might be working on internally? Because you mentioned a bunch of other agency facing, you might call them legacy systems. That's right. Yeah, he's really focused on supporting CISA functions internally as the agency is growing. One of his big initiatives, of course, is, is building out CISA's own zero trust architecture, as all other agencies are doing as well. 
And he's also focused on actually expanding CISA's support to its growing uh, field operations at, at states around the country. Now, Costello just joined CISA last year. He has experience at much larger IT divisions at places like ICE and CBP. CISA currently only has about 90 people in its CIO's office, so it's still very much a growing organization. Uh, here's Costello talking a little bit more about that. You know, there's been days where I'm handing out laptops or configuring stuff there, so you get to get a little more hands-on. We're definitely maturing a lot of our processes, kind of building a component CIO office. I really do think it's going to take a few years to kind of get to the same level of, say, an IES or CBP, uh, where we're doing all those functions ourselves. And so in some areas, maybe I've slowed down some work because we're not quite there at that maturity level as we kind of stabilize other areas. Again, CISA CIO Bob Costello. And Justin, any specific technologies? You mentioned zero trust. Anything else he would like to improve there? Because it seems to me they have to be the poster child for excellence in technology and technology protection. That's exactly right, Tom. I think a big focus uh, for for CISA in Zero Trust is actually identity credential and access management, or ICAM. That's an area that Costello actually said the agency is currently, quote, lacking in. And that's one area he wants to shore up. And, And as you pointed out, Costello wants to make sure that CISA is setting a strong example for the rest of the federal government when it comes to Zero Trust. So while they might be lacking in some areas, at the same time, as a new agency, they have the advantage of being able to build kind of new solutions, uh, what, what IT folks call greenfield solutions, rather than needing to kind of rework and update an extensive legacy IT environment. So Costello says progress might be a little slower than he initially expected, but they're looking to build something that's going to last for the long term. I had some goals in mind this year. We met a lot of them, some of them are going to slip and that's okay because I want to build a really strong foundation that CISA can build on for a decade. And so I'd rather take a six-month slip on a project than build a really poor foundation. And Justin, I can't help but notice it was the CIO talking about the future procurement authority. And as you know, under you know FATARA, this, this goes back a number of years now, CIOs are supposed to have budgetary authority over the technology spend, even though the commitment of dollars technically is done by contracting officers. So it sounds like having him as the spokesman indicates that IT is going to be a big part of what it is they acquire. Yeah, after all, CISA is a technology agency. They are the the nation's cyber agency, as Jen Easterly calls it, the director calls it. And, you know, they're going to be building up these different capabilities, both internally, as Costello's kind of focused on, to support really growing uh, the field operations that are supporting government agencies, that are supporting critical infrastructure and other customers around the country. So I think the CIO kind of being excited about being able to acquire his own stuff makes sense. And acquiring acquisition authority, is that something that could happen just within the authorities of DHS itself coming from Secretary Mayorkas? Or is that something that Congress gave them in some recent, say, NDAA or authorization bill? As I understand it, the, uh, the the procurement authority is being delegated down from, from DHS uh, headquarters, from the management division, um, the office of the procurement office, uh, officer, which has been supporting CISA to date. So it's coming down from DHS headquarters. And uh, as I understand it, it didn't require any congressional action. When they screw up, then they'll hear from Congress. That's right. As, as Congress always likes to get involved when there's a big, big screw up. All right. Well, we wish them luck and hope they certainly don't screw up. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was ten years old. And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see 
a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.